Chapter Twenty One, Part Two of Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Twenty One: The States General of the Fourteenth Century, Part Two. It was not without serious grounds that the Dauphin attached so much importance to gaining time. When, in the preceding month of October, he had summoned to Paris the States-General of Languedoc, he had likewise convoked at Toulouse those of Languedoc, and he was informed that the latter had not only just voted a levy of fifty thousand men-at-arms with an adequate subsidy, but that in order to show their royalist sentiments they had decreed a sort of public mourning, to last for a year, if King John were not released from his captivity. The Dauphin's idea was to summon other provincial assemblies, from which he hoped for similar manifestations. It was said, moreover, that several deputies, already gone from Paris, had been ill-received in their towns, at Soissons amongst others, on account of their excessive claims, and their insulting language toward all the king's counsellors. Under such flattering auspices the Dauphin set out, according to the announcement he had made, from Paris, on the 5th of December, 1356, to go and meet the Emperor Charles the Fourth at Metz, but at his departure he committed exactly the fault which was likely to do him the most harm at Paris. Being in want of money for his costly trip, he subjected the coinage to a fresh adulteration, which took effect five days after his departure. The leaders in Paris seized eagerly upon so legitimate a grievance for the support of their claims. As early as the third of the preceding November, when they were apprised of the Dauphin's approaching departure from Metz, and the adjournment of their sittings, the States-General had come to a decision that their remonstrances and demands, summed up in twenty-one articles, should be read in general assembly, and that a recital of the negotiations which had taken place on that subject between the Estates and the Dauphin should likewise be drawn up, in order that all the deputies might be able to tell in their districts wherefore the answers had not been received. When, after the Dauphin's departure, the new debased coins were put in circulation, the people were driven to an outbreak thereby, and the provost of tradesmen, Stephen Marcel, hurried to the Louvre to demand of the Count of Anjou, the Dauphin's brother and lieutenant, a withdrawal of the decree. Having obtained no answer, he returned the next day, escorted by a throng of the inhabitants of Paris. At length on the third day the numbers assembled were so considerable that the young prince took alarm, and suspended the execution of the decree until his brother's return. For the first time Stephen Marcel had got himself supported by an outbreak of the people. For the first time the mob had imposed its will upon the ruling power, and from this day forth pacific and lawful resistance was transformed into a violent struggle. At his re-entry into Paris, on the 19th of January, 1357, the Dauphin attempted to once more gain possession of some sort of authority. He issued orders to Marcel and the sheriffs to remove the stoppage they had placed on the currency of the new coinage. This was to found his opposition on the worst side of his case. "'We will do nothing of the sort,' replied Marcel, and in a few moments, at the provost's orders, the workpeople left their work, and shouts of two arms resounded through the streets. The prince's counsellors were threatened with death. The Dauphin saw the hopelessness of a struggle, for there were hardly a handful of men left to guard the Louvre. On the morrow, the 20th of January, he sent for Marcel and the sheriffs into the great hall of Parliament, and giving way on almost every point, bound himself to no longer issue new coin, to remove from his council the officers who had been named to him, and even to imprison them until the return of his father, 
who would do full justice to them. The estates were at the same time authorized to meet when they pleased, on all which points the provost of tradesmen requested letters, which were granted him, and he demanded that the Dauphin should immediately place sergeants in the houses of those of his councillors who still happened to be in Paris, and that proceedings should be taken without delay for making an inventory of their goods, with a view to confiscation of them. The estates met on the 5th of February. It was not without surprise that they found themselves less numerous than they had hitherto been. The deputies from the Duchy of Burgundy, from the Countships of Flanders and Alencon, and several nobles and burghers from other provinces, did not repair to the session. The kingdom was falling into anarchy. Bands of plunderers roved hither and thither, threatening persons and ravaging lands. The magistrates either could not or would not exercise their authority. Disquietude and disgust were gaining possession of many honest folks. Marcel and his partisans, having fallen into somewhat of disrepute and neglect, keenly felt how necessary, and also how easy, it was for them to become completely masters. They began by drawing up a series of propositions, which they had distributed and spread abroad far and wide in the provinces. On the 3rd of March they held a public meeting, at which the Dauphin and two of his brothers were present. A numerous throng filled the hall. The Bishop of Laon, Robert Lecoq, the spokesman of the party, made a long and vehement statement of all the public grievances, and declared that twenty-two of the king's officers should be deprived forever of all offices, that all the officers of the kingdom should be provisionally suspended, and that reformers, chosen by the estates, and commissioned by the Dauphin himself, should go all over France, to hold inquiries as to these officers, and according to their deserts, either reinstate them in their offices or condemn them. At the same time the estates bound themselves to raise thirty thousand men-at-arms, whom they themselves would pay and keep, and as the produce of the impost voted for this purpose was very uncertain, they demanded their adjournment to the fortnight of Easter, and two sessions certain, for which they should be free to fix the time before the 15th of February in the following year. This was simply to decree the permanence of their power. To all these demands the Dauphin offered no resistance." In the month of March following, a grand ordinance, drawn up in sixty-one articles, enumerated all the grievances which had been complained of, and prescribed the redress for them. A second ordinance, regulating all that appertained to the suspension of the royal officers, was likewise, as it appears, drawn up at the same time, but has not come down to us. At last a grand commission was appointed, comprised of thirty-six members, twelve elected by each of the three orders. These thirty-six persons, says Froissart, were bound to often meet together at Paris, for to order the affairs of the kingdom, and all kinds of matters were to be disposed of by these three estates, and all prelates, all lords, and all commonalities of the cities and good towns were bound to be obedient to what these three estates should order. Having their power thus secured to their absence, the estates adjourned to the 25th of April. The rumor of these events reached Bordeaux, where, since the defeat at Poitiers, King John had been living as the guest of the Prince of Wales, rather than as a prisoner of the English. Amidst the galas and pleasures to which he abandoned himself, he was indignant to learn that at Paris the royal authority was ignored, and he sent three of his comrades in captivity to notify to the Parisians that he rejected all the claims of the estates, that he would not have payment made of the subsidy voted by them, and that he forbade their meeting on the 25th of April following. This strange manifesto on the part of imprisoned royalty excited in Paris such irritation amongst the people, that the Dauphin hastily sent out of the city the king's three envoys, whose lives might have been threatened, 
and declared to the thirty-six commissioners of the estates that the subsidy should be raised, and that the general assembly should be perfectly free to meet at the time it had appointed. And it did meet towards the end of April, but in far fewer numbers than had been the case hitherto, and with more and more division from day to day. Nearly all the nobles and ecclesiastics were withdrawing from it, and amongst the burgesses themselves many of the more moderate spirits were becoming alarmed at the violent proceedings of the commission of the thirty-six delegates, who, under the direction of Stephen Marcel, were becoming a small oligarchy, little by little usurping the place of the great national assembly. A cry was raised in the provinces against the injustice of those chief governors who were no more than ten or a dozen, and there was a refusal to pay the subsidy voted. These symptoms and the disorganization which was coming to a head throughout the whole kingdom made the Dauphin think that the moment had arrived for him to seize the reins again. About the middle of August, 1357, he sent for Marcel and three sheriffs, accustomed to direct matters at Paris, and let them know that he intended thenceforward to govern by himself, without curators. He at the same time restored to office some of the lately dismissed royal officers. The thirty-six commissioners made a show of submission, and their most faithful ecclesiastical ally, Robert Lecoq, Bishop of Lone, returned to his diocese. The Dauphin left Paris and went a trip into some of the provinces, halting at the principal towns, such as Rouen and Chartres, and everywhere, with intelligent but timid discretion, making his presence and his will felt, not very successfully, however, as regarded the re-establishment of some kind of order on his route in the name of the kingship. Marcel and his partisans took advantage of his absence to shore up their tottering supremacy. They felt how important it was for them to have a fresh meeting of the estates, whose presence alone could restore strength to their commissioners, but the Dauphin only could legally summon them. They therefore eagerly pressed him to return in person to Paris, giving him a promise that, if he agreed to convoke their deputies from twenty or thirty towns, they would supply him with the money of which he was in need, and would say no more about the dismissal of royal officers, or about setting at liberty the King of Navarre. The Dauphin, being still young and trustful, though he was already discreet and reserved, fell into the snare. He returned to Paris, and summoned thither, for the seventh of November following, the deputies from seventy towns, a sufficient number to give their meeting a specious resemblance to the States-General. One circumstance ought to have caused him some glimmering of suspicion. At the same time that the Dauphin was sending to the deputies his letters of convocation, Marcel himself also sent to them, as if he possessed the right, either in his own name or in that of the thirty-six delegate commissioners, of calling them together. But a still more serious matter came to open the Dauphin's eyes to the danger he had fallen into. During the night, between the 8th and ninth of November, 1357, immediately after the reopening of the estates, Charles the Bad, King of Navarre, was carried off by a surprise from the castle of Arlot and Cambrisis, where he had been confined, and his liberators removed him first of all to Amiens and then to Paris itself, where the popular party gave him a triumphant reception. Marcel and his sheriffs had decided upon and prepared, at a private council, this dramatic incident, so contrary to the promises they had but lately made to the Dauphin. Charles the Bad used his deliverance like a skilful workman. The very day after his arrival in Paris he mounted a platform set against the walls of St. Germain's Abbey, and there, in the presence of more than ten thousand persons, burgesses and populace, he delivered a long speech, seasoned with much venom, says a chronicler of the time. 
After having denounced the wrongs which he had been made to endure, he said, for eighteen months past, he declared that he would live and die in defence of the kingdom of France, giving it to be understood that, if he were minded to claim the crown, he would soon show by the laws of right and wrong that he was nearer to it than the king of England was. He was insinuating, eloquent, and an adept in the art of making truth subserve to the cause of falsehood. The people were moved by his speech. The Dauphin was obliged not only to put up with the release and the triumph of his most dangerous enemy, but to make an outward show of reconciliation with him, and to undertake not only to give him back the castles confiscated after his arrest, but to act towards him as a good brother towards his brother. These were the exact words made use of in the Dauphin's name, and without having asked his pleasure about it, by Robert Lecoq, Bishop of Lone, who himself had also returned from his diocese to Paris, at the time of the recall of the estates. The consequences of this position were not slow to exhibit themselves. Whilst the King of Navarre was re-entering Paris and the Dauphin submitting to the necessity of a reconciliation with him, several of the deputies who had but lately returned to the States-General, and amongst others nearly all those from Champagne and Burgundy, were going away again, being unwilling either to witness the triumphal re-entry of Charles the Bad, or to share the responsibility for such acts as they foresaw. Before long the struggle, or rather the war, between the King of Navarre and the Dauphin broke out again. Several of the nobles in possession of the castles, which were to have been restored to Charles the Bad, and especially those of Bretouille, Passy-sur-Eure, and Pont-d'Adamer, flatly refused to give them back to him, and the Dauphin was suspected, probably not without reason, of having encouraged them in their resistance. Without the walls of Paris it was really war that was going on between the two princes. Philip of Navarre, brother of Charles the Bad, went marching with bands of pillagers over Normandy and Anjou, and within a few leagues of Paris, declaring that he had not taken, and did not intend to take, any part in his brother's pacific arrangements, and carrying fire and sword through the country. The peasantry from the ravaged districts were overflowing Paris. Stephen Marcel had no mind to reject the support which many of them brought him, but they had to be fed, and the treasury was empty. The wreck of the States-General, meeting on the 2nd of January, 1358, themselves had recourse to the expedient which they had so often and so violently reproached the King and the Dauphin with employing. They notably depreciated the coinage, allotting a fifth of the profit to the Dauphin, and retaining the other four-fifths for the defence of the kingdom. What Marcel and his party called the defence of the kingdom was the works of fortification around Paris, begun in October 1356 against the English, after the defeat of Poitiers, and resuming in 1358 against the Dauphin's party in the neighbouring provinces, as well as against the robbers that were laying them waste. Amidst all this military and popular excitement the Dauphin kept to the Louvre, having about him two thousand men-at-arms, whom he had taken into his pay, he said, solely on account of the prospect of a war with the Navarrese. Before he went and plunged into a civil war outside the gates of Paris, he resolved to make an effort to win back the Parisians themselves to his cause. He sent a crier through the city to bid the people assemble in the market-place, and thither he repaired on horseback, on the 11th of January, with five or six of his most trusty servants. The astonished mob thronged about him, and he addressed them in vigorous language. He meant, he said, to live and die amongst the people of Paris. If he was collecting his men-at-arms, it was not for the purpose of plundering and oppressing Paris, but that he might march against their common enemies, and if he had not done so sooner, it was because the folks who had taken the government gave him neither money nor arms, but they would some day be called to strict account for it. 
The Dauphin was small, thin, delicate, and of insignificant appearance, but at this juncture he displayed unexpected boldness and eloquence. The people were deeply moved, and Marcel and his friends felt that a heavy blow had just been dealt them. They hastened to respond with a blow of another sort. It was everywhere whispered abroad that if Paris was suffering so much from civil war, and the irregularities and calamities which were the concomitants of it, the fault lay with the Dauphin's surroundings, and that his noble advisers deterred him from measures which would save the people from their miseries. Provost Marcel and the Burgesses of Paris took counsel together, and decided that it would be a good thing if some of those attendants on the regent were to be taken away from the midst of this world. They all put on caps, red on one side and blue on the other, which they wore as a sign of their confederation in defense of the common weal. This done, they reassembled in large numbers on the 22nd of February, 1358, with the provost at their head, and marched to the palace where the duke was lodged. This crowd entered on its way, the street called Juvery, Jewry, the advocate-general, Regnaud d'Assy, one of the twenty-two royal officers denounced by the estates in the preceding year, and he was massacred in a pastry-cook's shop. Marcel, continuing his road, arrived at the palace, and ascended, followed by a band of armed men, to the apartments of the Dauphin, whom he requested very sharply, says Froissart, to restrain so many companies from roving about on all sides, damaging and plundering the country. The duke replied that he would do so willingly if he had the wherewithal to do it, but that it was for him who received the dues belonging to the kingdom to discharge that duty. I know not why or how, adds Froissart, but words were multiplied on the part of all, and became very high. My lord duke, suddenly said the provost, do not alarm yourself, but we have somewhat to do here. And turning towards his fellows in the caps, he said, Dearly beloved, do that for which ye are come. Immediately the lord de Conflans, marshal of Champagne, and Robert de Clermont, marshal of Normandy, noble and valiant gentlemen, and both at the time unarmed, were massacred so close to the Dauphin and his couch, that his robe was covered with their blood. The Dauphin shuddered, and the rest of his officers fled. "'Take no heed, Lord Duke,' said Marcel, "'you have naught to fear.' He handed to the Dauphin his own red and blue cap, and himself put on the Dauphin's, which was of black stuff with golden fringe. The corpses of the two marshals were dragged into the courtyard of the palace, where they remained until evening, without any one's daring to remove them and Marcel with his followers repaired to the mansion-house, and harangued from an open window the mob collected at the Place de Greve. "'What has been done is for the good of the profit of the kingdom,' he said. "'The dead were false and wicked traitors. "'We do own it and will maintain it,' cried the people who were about him. The house from which Marcel thus addressed the people was his own property, and was called the pillar-house. There he accommodated the town council, which had formerly held its sittings in diverse parlours. End of chapter 21, part 2